this year, uh, in July, marked uh, my 20th year of pastoring. And I have had, in those 20 years, a lot of encouragements, but I've also had a lot of discouragements. Being a pastor isn't simply a job. It envelops how you think, how you act, how you live. It's kind of like parenting. Uh, You don't take off the parenting hat and then put it on. You're always thinking about your children, always behaving in ways uh, that affect them and, and, and behaving in ways that seek to care for them. And you know that if anything happens to you, it's going to affect your children. What shapes and damages you will probably shape and damage them. It's a joyful yet weighty responsibility. And as I look in the scriptures, I also see when I think about being a pastor, when I look at the scriptures, I see in the spiritual realm, and I'll talk about the, the demonic realm in particular, you can see specific kinds of attacks that go to spiritual leaders. Maybe you, like me, you've spent time reading biographies of Christians in the past, and one of the common threads that you'll discover if you read Christian biographies of Christian leaders in the past is the thread of trials. Um, spouses and children die immense physical sicknesses, opposition from friends or neighbors, martyrdom even. And as I've gone through, personally, 20 years pastoring, I look back at seasons of my life and I have seen intense mental trials, chronic physical pain that continues to this day, emotional pain, spiritual trauma, familial tensions, and relational discord. And within this last year, as I was in the thick of certain struggles, a thought came to me. (laughs) A potential solution to get myself and my family out of the spiritual attacks. And the solution was, stop pastoring. Just stop. By becoming a pastor, I entered into the minefield and I welcomed my family who did not volunteer for this into it. Maybe if I just get out of it, it'll at least lessen it. Because every area of my life has been attacked as a pastor. Why not just stop? And then I began to have greener pastures on my mind. And yet, deep within me, I couldn't embrace those thoughts. I knew God had called me into this, and yet I struggled. Why? Why does God call us to enter into trials and suffering? Why? See, when I was younger, I used to look at passages that talked about trials, and I think I had a very warped view. Like where Paul says in Romans 8, We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he'd go on and say, yet we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I I had this view, like, when trials come, I'm going to be like a Marvel superhero. You know, yeah, woohoo, see how strong I am. And I didn't really realize that trials are actually trials. And trials are not meant to reveal how strong we are in and of ourselves. Actually, what I've come to realize in going through trials is that I am very, very weak. My perception of what I think God ought to be doing is very different than what God actually says he will do or does do. And God doesn't bring trials into our lives in order to make us strong. Did you know that? God doesn't doesn't bring trials in order to make us strong. God brings trials into our lives to reveal how weak we are so that we can see how strong he is. I want to say that again. God does not bring trials into our lives 
in order to make us strong. He brings trials and allows trials into our lives so that we see how strong he is in the midst of our weakness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul's conclusion, I will boast all the more gladly of my, say that word, weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul does not say, I am going to boast in all the strength that I have. No. I'm going to boast in the strength of Jesus. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that you would see how strong Jesus is. Last week, Jonathan preached a wonderful sermon on gratitude in the midst of trials. Today, this sermon, I want to maybe piggyback off of that, flesh it out just a little bit more. What does it mean to live in gratitude in the midst of trials? I mean, after all, Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trials. The Apostle James goes so far as to say, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And actually the context is when, when, you, when you are experiencing the maelstrom of trials, when you're experiencing the tornado of multiple trials, count it all joy. How? How can you count it all joy when you have multiple trials going on at once? I want to land today as a base camp passage in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. Actually, Colby, he he tried to verify with me this morning about the scripture reading. He's like, is it correct, 1 Corinthians 4? Yeah. Then he started reading. I go, no, it wasn't 1 Corinthians. Oops. But it did give us a little bit of a backdrop into... Uh, Paul and his trials. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians 4, though, please. In the midst of feeling my own uh, chaos this past year, a dear friend shared with me 2 Corinthians 4, and it's stuck with me. For the last few months, I've consistently been brought back to this passage. I'm still pondering. I, I even debated preaching it today, Because there's so much beauty there that God continues to reveal to me, and I feel like all I can do this morning is scratch the surface. And yet at the same time, I hope that this will be an encouragement and a strength to you spiritually. This chapter is Paul's explanation of what it's like to be an apostle. It's painful. It's difficult. False teachers get the credit. The Corinthians doubt that Paul actually loves them. And yet Paul persists in ministry. Paul relates his struggle in ministry, even. He connects it to the death of Jesus. He's experiencing the death of Jesus in his ministry to them. Yet he's he's firmly convinced that as he experiences these deaths in ministry, that God is going to work miracles. Through the deaths, God is going to shine forth eternal resurrection life through him. Now, as a pastor, I can resonate with some of what Paul is saying here. I'm not an apostle. They lived 2,000 years ago. But as a pastor, I can, I can relate. But I think that everybody ought to relate to Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians 4. Because Paul is doing more than simply defining what it's like for him in ministry. I think what Paul is also doing is he is serving as an example to the Corinthians of how we ought to think as we go through trials. Now, I say this because in another passage in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about the trials of this life in terms of death and resurrection. And he's not only applying it to him, he goes so far to say to the Philippian church, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, in any, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
What Paul says to the Philippian church is he's saying, this is how we ought to think. Those who who get it, get it. If you're mature, you, you think this way. And if you know Jesus Christ and you still don't embrace this, God's going to reveal it to you. Over time, he's going to show you this is how he works. So, so while Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is talking about himself, I believe we can apply this mindset to us as well. How ought we to be thinking in the midst of trials? The reality is that if you are a Christian... If you are a Christian, you are called to live a life of death. Did you know that? In Romans 8, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, let's say the rest of this together, We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Hmm. In God's plan, in God's plan, in this broken world, for all who trust in Jesus, death always comes before life. Get that. Dying always comes before resurrection. If you want to experience future resurrection, Paul says, then your life, even in the here and now, will have a dying to it. And that's completely opposite to how we think. Especially in our society with so many privileges. I don't know about you, but I often try to think about how to minimize the pain and conflict. I often want to remove the tensions that exist. But what if the tensions And the pains of this life are God's tools for removing my selfish impulses and are causing me and others to increasingly depend on and delight in the Lord. What if? This reminds me of a prayer that's written in a song And the songwriter says this, Oh, disarm me of everything that I would lean on. So I will lean on you. Jesus, strip me of everything I would depend on. So I depend on you. We were made, we were made to commune with God. And to know him. Anything that hinders us from that is keeping us from life, right? And so I think of Paul in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Right before getting into what we call chapter 4, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul gives the point, the purpose. We as Christians, with this unveiled face, what he's saying is like figuratively speaking, we now can see with eyes of faith, we can behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold the glory of Jesus, we're transformed. We become more like Jesus, one degree of glory to another degree of glory, and this is all by the empowerment of the Spirit who does this. If you're a Christian, you can say you've experienced this in your life, right? You have grown in godliness because of the Spirit's work in you, and only the Spirit can do this. Now, as I read that, there's a big question that comes to you, to me. Because in chapter 4, Paul's going to show us one of the big ways that the Spirit conforms him more to the image of Jesus. And it's through trials. And so my question for all of us is, is Jesus worth it? Is, Is Jesus worth the trials? 
to become more like him. See, as we go into 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And then in verse 7, Paul refers to God's glory through Jesus as the treasure. Jesus is Paul's treasure. Jesus is who Paul proclaims because out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is his love. I, I have to emphasize this at this point in time, right now. If God's glory in Jesus is not a treasure to you, then suffering for the Lord and going through trials to be more like Jesus is not going to be worth it. Some of you here might not be enduring through trials because there's a deeper issue of the heart. You don't really value Jesus. Remember Jesus' words? Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You try to hold on and grasp to this life, you end up losing it. It might look good for a while. You might even have managed to try to control your life until the day you die. But if you try to grasp for it, you're going to lose it in the end because that's what you're living for. But those of us who lose our lives, Jesus is serious about these words. This is all yours, Jesus. You end up finding it. And not just life in this life, eternal life. You'll go through the daily deaths and trials if the Spirit opens your eyes to see that Jesus is truly, eternally valuable. Do you know that? Jesus is more valuable than money. Jesus is more valuable than your family. Jesus is more valuable than your accomplishments. Jesus is more valuable than your reputation. Jesus is more valuable than your comfort. If you believe this, or even if you're sitting here saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Praise the Lord, because the rest of this sermon will hopefully serve to encourage you. Now, since the wrong chapter was read, I want to take some time to read from this chapter. Make sure we hear the words coming straight from Paul. So, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In the following words of chapter 4, we find how God intends to shine his miraculous life through broken people. And we, we, don't, we don't tend to like that. <laughs> we don't like the breaking. If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you like being broken? I don't think any hands would go up. When trials come into our life, we have natural tendencies Fight it, flee from it, or ignore it, suppress it. It doesn't exist. But for Christians, Paul gives us a different option. Lean into the Lord and his gospel of death and resurrection. Now still, you say, what, is that? what does that mean? And I get why you ask that question. 
because I actually had that question a couple of years ago. As many of you know, when I went on our family vacation and I suffer, and I use suffer as a real word, with gout on our family vacation. And I got back, and a couple weeks later, I met with my spiritual mentor, Thad. And I was still kind of recovering from just being angry at the Lord. And Thad said to me, lean in to Jesus. You need to lean in in these times. What does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, Paul shows us what it looks like through imagery here. And I actually have, uh, after this friend this year gave me this passage, I took time to draw out the imagery. And so I've got it here. I'm no artist, okay? But I, I hope it's helpful because Paul is using this imagery. I think he wants us to have it in our minds. What does it mean to lean in to Jesus and the gospel of death and resurrection? Well, one, I think it means to embrace our inherent weaknesses. Embrace the reality that you are a weak individual. Now, we are created in the image of God, which is glorious and wonderful, right? We are still creatures, right? So I said at the beginning of this service that, that pain can actually remind us of reality. We're creatures. God is not. God has no weaknesses whatsoever. We do. And yet, yet, if you're like me, when we go through trials and difficulties, the first person we can tend to turn to is who? Ourselves. I got to figure this out. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to, 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 I got to. No. I'm the weak one. Lord, help. I'm not the strong one. This reminds me years ago when I heard a preacher and, and he said, uh, he said, pray like it all depends on God, act like it all depends on you. And I am still bothered by that quote to this day. Because isn't the problem, hasn't the problem always been that human beings have acted like it all depends on them? Right? From the beginning. No, 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 no. That's not reality. It doesn't all depend on me. It all depends on God. I need to pray like it all depends on God because it all depends on God. I need to live like it all depends on God because it all depends on God. So when trials come, who do I resort to? Who do I run to? Who do I lean into? I'm weak. I'm not the solution. Right? Embrace your inherent weakness. I say this because of verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And just to make sure we get it, and not to us. We're clay pots. That's what we are. Embrace your inherent weakness. And then, embrace the trials in your life. As you look at the screen, you see that jar of clay is, that's actually supposed to signify shattering. Okay? So it's shattered in multiple places. And what's shattering it? It's the cross. Because what Paul does is he relates the cross, he relates the death of Jesus to his trials. So he's defined his trials. Affliction, being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down. Look at verses 8 through 10 again with me. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So in verse 10, Paul says that he and the other ministry leaders are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That does not mean literally Jesus is being crucified inside of him. What he's talking about, he's just defined. The death of Jesus is 
being afflicted, being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down. That's all sharing in Jesus' death. How can, how can Paul say that? Because Jesus did endure all those things. To be afflicted is to be oppressed and to suffer hardships. Did Jesus experience that? To be perplexed is to, be, is to feel at a loss to the point of experiencing severe anxiety. What was Jesus' experience the night before he died? Praying in the garden. Jesus was praying with intensity. The word for persecuted refers to people having a plan, setting a plan in place in order to oppress you. Did Jesus experience that from the religious leaders? And struck down means to be hurt badly, which again, Jesus endured this. Now, as you hear these words and you hear the words coming from Paul, you might say two things. One, well, my suffering, my trials are nothing in comparison to Jesus's. And so right there, you've minimized your trials, okay? I just want a newsflash. Nobody has suffered like Jesus has suffered. Would you agree? Jesus endured an eternity's worth of God's just punishment for myriads upon myriads of sinners in the place of sinners so that sinners can be declared righteous. Nobody suffered like that. But does that then mean that we don't suffer? Does it? No. Or you might say, well, I, I certainly I have not suffered like Paul has suffered. Neither did many, and neither has many other people throughout the centuries. And even Paul will say he still labored harder than the other apostles. We're not in a comparison game here. Instead, if you remember Jonathan's sermon last week, we see from the scriptures that we can say we share in Christ's suffering because we get tastes of Christ's suffering in this life in our experiences, and also because Jesus shares in the sufferings with us. Did you hear that? Do you remember that from last week? That Jesus walks with us in the midst of our suffering and our pain. So my question to you is, have you ever been so perplexed that you've gotten to the point of feeling anxiety? Yes? Do you ever feel like people might be against you? Have you ever felt... Have you ever been hurt badly by others because of Christ's sake? These trials are tastes of the death of Jesus in you. And since that's the case, we ought to embrace or lean into this death. This reminds me of a story about my mom decades ago when one of my sisters was living in rebellion and my mom was at a point of feeling despair and hopelessness. And she got together with an older woman in the church, and that woman had had her trials in her life. And she had my mother over, and they were sitting down. I think they were sitting down in the living room or something. And the older woman said to my mom, Carla, you need to learn to make pain your friend. And my mom thought she was loony. Now, it's not even necessarily that pain is our friend, literally. It's more that we can lean into it because God has promised to turn it all for our good, our eternal good. This reminds me of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And in that hymn, the author says, as though he's speaking, as though God is speaking, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Now, some people look at it, sanctify to thee thy deepest, what in the world is being said here? Sanctify, to set apart for our growth and good. Deepest distress, our deepest pains. God promises to set them apart for our eternal good. God will bless us through these things. 
Why? Because God's intention is that always life comes after death for his children. If we really believe this and understand this, we'll embrace our inherent weaknesses, we'll embrace the death in the trials, because through our death, Jesus' resurrection life is seen. Now, again, if you don't value Jesus, this isn't going to mean much to you. But if you treasure him, then you're going to be amazed. Through death comes life. Always, always how God works in his children. So if you look at this slide, you see at the bottom, there's a dark spot with a little green line over that. That's to represent the empty tomb. Okay? The empty tomb, that's pretty important to our faith, isn't it? Yeah, would you say? I just want to make sure... You agree or that you're awake? Okay. The empty tomb is important. The Apostle Paul says himself that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is futile. There's no point. It's all vain. And then we're still in our sins. There has to be an empty tomb for this to matter. And there was an empty tomb. Jesus Jesus rose from the dead. We're hopeless if he didn't. But we're filled with eternal hope if he did. And he did raise from the dead. So in our lives, trials picture the death. And by the Spirit's grace and power, God reveals Jesus' resurrection through us. So let's go further with this picture. We would go through these things. We'd lean into this because God works his miraculous promises in death. You don't have to be able to read everything here yet. Don't worry, okay? I'm going to zoom in on a certain spot in a moment. As a basis for the clay jar to rest. That's just what I want you to see right now. As a basis for the clay jar to rest and have refuge are God's promises. God's promises secure us in the storms. God's promises secure us in the trials. So let's read verses 8 through 9 again. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And now you see here what the white lines coming out of every broken area is supposed to represent rays of light. Rays of light that shine from the resurrection of Jesus. Rays of light shining through the cracked jar, which, what's the jar? You and me, right? The cracks, the trials. And yet through that, we now become essentially a lantern for the Lord's glory. We have been opened up through the trials to to shine forth the light of Jesus. Listen, listen. I said earlier that we can tend to be people, when we go through trials, we fight, we flee, we ignore or suppress. And and that's like what you're doing in that is like that little kid song, hide it under a bushel. And what were we always taught to say? No. Why? I'm going to let it shine. What we do is when we fight or flee, no, you can't hurt me. I am not going to experience any pain. I'm going to protect myself from all possible pain in this life. And then what? We're a clay vessel that doesn't shine. But again, why why would I why would I lean into the Lord? Oh, and by the By the way, this is a very important note. Jonathan's sermon last week did talk about situations of abuse. And that's very important to understand here because we're not saying that you run into those and say, yay, I'm going to stay in this. Okay? Jonathan gave explanation. If you didn't hear that sermon last week, please go online and listen. Talk to me. Talk to another elder. Talk to somebody else in the church about that. But we can... We can look at all of this and, again, ask ourselves, why would we endure? It's because of the promises. It's because the promises of God. He's good. God is good. Amen? 
And he's good all the time. So I want you to look here. Paul says, not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. That can only happen by the miraculous power and working of God. Truly, if you have ever talked to people who have left, who have either left Christianity or refused to embrace Christianity, one of the top arguments is because of evil in this world, because of trials and pain. They, they can't, they, they, they don't want to put that together. They can't put that together. And you know what? I get it, actually. I have felt that in the midst of my trials. There have been times where I've either said or felt or almost said, God, I'm out. I'm done. And God, it's like he responded to me and he said, but I'm not done with you. Ha! I can't leave. How is it? How is it that you can have people who will reject Christ from the pain and the trials, and then you can have people who love Jesus more as they've gone through pain and trials? How is it, even as I look at my own life, how is it that I love Jesus more today than I did a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? That can only be the miraculous working of the Spirit. And the same is true for you, Christian. It can only be because of the miraculous working of Christ's power in you, where you would say, I'm weak. I'm no stronger than I was. This is Jesus' strength. God has made promises. And these promises are secure. And the reason why these promises are secure for us as Christians is because Jesus did experience all those things. You remember what Isaiah 53 says? It said, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was taken to the point of despair. Jesus was forsaken on the cross, experiencing the just wrath that sinners deserved. Jesus' body was destroyed for a time. But Jesus conquered all those things. Through death came life. And so, Paul is saying, as it was for Jesus, so it will be for all of us who follow Jesus. And we can actually say, I'm not crushed. I'm not driven to despair. I'm not forsaken. I'm not destroyed. This is a mystery, by the way. If I got a clay pot right here and I started taking a hammer to it, you would say, you're destroying it. If that clay pot had a brain, it would say, I'm being destroyed right now. Right? This is where the imagery kind of like breaks apart, so to speak. Where I don't understand how it's possible to be afflicted and not crushed. That doesn't make sense. The very... The very meaning of the word perplexed means that you're so confused, you're driven to a point of anxiety. And yet Paul says you're perplexed, but not driven to despair. That seems impossible. Not with God. Not with God. He he works life through death. And we can be confident he does that, right? Right? Because he proved that he did that 2,000 years ago with Jesus. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so guess what? Your deaths, your deaths will always lead to resurrection because of Jesus Christ. By the way, you see I have like parentheses here under these words. And I, I want to, I added those because 
some of us could look at our lives and say, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm not crushed, but like I'm almost crushed. I'm not despairing, but I'm like kind of almost there. So as long as God doesn't get you fully there, like, okay, I guess I'm okay. I'm not destroyed, but I'm mostly destroyed. But actually when Paul is using these knots, he's going to the opposites. And this, this is, again, the miracle. We are being made whole. In the afflicting, God is making us whole. In the perplexity, God is giving us hope. In the persecution, God is showing us our union with him and communion we have with him. When we're being struck down, we are actually being made, we are being built up. Only God can do that. And that's a beautiful reality when you start to experience those things in your life. So what Paul is saying here in these verses is the life of Jesus, the treasure, shines through the weakness and brokenness that the death of Jesus emphasizes. The death of Jesus, the trials in our lives, are the springboard to reveal the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, Christ, I think Paul communicates, Christ's glory will shine all the more brightly through the trials and will lead to increased thanks in other, others to God. Okay, I've just brought in another point here. This is actually an encouragement that Paul has in his own soul. God has promised life through death. God, he also, Paul is also convinced other people are going to praise the Lord more because of the suffering he goes through. Why does he add that in there? Paul says, death is at work in us, but life in you. What does that, what's that life look like? I think verse 15 gives us the answer. Increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, more and more and more people are going to rejoice in God. Not only are you individually going to treasure God more through the suffering and the difficulty, but other people are going to praise God increasingly as they look at Christ's work in your life. And that matters. Because we were made for who? God. I was made for God. You were made for God. And we were made to rejoice in God. Right? And I will grow in my joy in God. And guess what? Through my suffering and pain, God promises the light of Jesus will shine and you will rejoice in God all the more. That should actually be an encouragement to me. Now, some of you who go through trials, and I've had this too, like, I just like, you know what? I just want to tap out. I don't care if other people praise. Just like, just, let's just be done. Can we just be content with this? Start over. Do something else. But you know, that doesn't even fit with how... God made us. We were made to find even greater joy when other people take joy in what we enjoy. I mean, you probably experienced that this past week, Thanksgiving. Um, you all ate at least something that was delicious, I imagine. And some of you here, probably when you put that in your mouth and you tasted it, your response almost immediately was, oh, you have got to try this. Just raise of hands. I want to know who, who did do that. Okay, we see some hands. And I imagine that others of you, you've done that at some point in time. Why do we do that? Why did I give up a delectable, a delectable bite of something? It was so good, I was willing to give it up. Why? Because we were created for this enjoyment and enjoying what we enjoy with each other. That's just food. That's just food. What if there is one who is so glorious that all other glories pale in comparison? That he is so glorious that you would say, he's worth the trials. He's worth the suffering and the pain so that his life can shine through and then you would rejoice? Yes. 
Let's rejoice together. Let's rejoice together and thank our triune God who reveals himself through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We read in chapter 3 that God's intention is that we would be transformed increasingly to become more like Jesus. And now Paul shows us that it's by the Spirit working in us even through trials that he enables us to rejoice with gratitude all the more to God. So questions for you. I mean, do you know this Jesus? Do you love him? Is he worthy? When I thought about Paul's words here, I was reminded of our study many of us are doing through the book of John and reminded about John the Baptist's words when he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Or when John's disciples, they say, more people are going to Jesus. We're losing people. Our following is diminishing. And some of you, many of you probably remember what John's response is. He gives the illustration of a wedding and he says, in that culture, in that time, the focus on the bridegroom. It's not on me. I don't go to a wedding to say, whoa, I'm amazing. I go to the wedding and say, whoa, look at the bridegroom. He's coming and then he's going to take this bride and they're going to get married and they're going to be, whoa. The focus is on him, not me. And that's where the rejoicing comes. Is Jesus worthy? So I want to take this and apply it to us. When trials come, do you say, he must increase. I must decrease. When trials come, think about this as a grandparent. Think about this as a parent. Think about this as a coworker. Think about this as a friend to other people. Think about this as a ministry leader. Think about this as a church member. Who do you want to be made known through your life? You want your kids to know Jesus and to know that Jesus is worthy? Do you want the people to know that Jesus is worthy? Do you? Okay. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you want this? The Spirit works through your trials, your deaths to do this. Will you embrace your inherent weaknesses and your trials because God is the supreme treasure? Do you know and believe God has miraculous life through death? And will you even say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Earlier I said that we can tend to fight, fly, or deny, suppress when we go through trials. Because we, I use the word tension. We don't like tension. We don't like to feel that tension. Yet did you notice in verse 10, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And then verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death. When I was drawing this picture, and putting everything together, I added a certain phrase. Do not seek to remove this tension. What's the tension? Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. What we tend to do in trying to solve life is get rid of the tension, and we think if we get rid of the tension, then everything's good. But do you know that certain things must have tension in order for them to function correctly? Piano, guitar. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Colby, do you want me to loosen all those strings for you to make sure we get rid of the tension? 
<laughs> and we all thank you for that perspective, right? Because there's a beautiful sound that comes when it's at the right tension. A couple of months ago, somebody asked me how I was doing. A friend of mine asked me how I was doing. And I said, I think I'm learning to savor the sound that the tension brings. Don't seek to remove the tension. When I look at that list that Paul gave us to describe the trials, I just wonder, I mean, we, we would not prefer any of those things to happen to us. But I wonder if we can all resonate with different ones in that list. For me, perplexed. It's like my, my natural tendency. If I can't figure it out, anxiety. Boom. It hits. I hate it. And I want to remove the tension. And removing the tension is figuring out the solution. What would it be for you? I'd encourage you to think through that. Ponder it. What do you run to try to solve and remove the tension with instead of saying, Lord, I'm weak. By your grace, I'm not going to try to fight and remove this tension because as Jesus says, those who find their life, who seek to gain their life, they're going to lose it. Those who lose their life will find it. And so I say with the Apostle Paul, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. God wastes no death in Christ. All death in Christ leads to life. And when you realize this, you and others will rejoice all the more. The life of Jesus shines through the weakness and brokenness that the death of Jesus emphasizes. Therefore, Christ will shine all the more brightly through trials, and will lead to increased thanks in others to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Hallowed be your name. May you be honored, glorified, and gloried in. Help us, Savior, to know that our strength is in you, our life is in you, and you are worthy of everything. To you be the glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. With all of that, please stand and hear these words of blessings from our God. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.